Today's scripture is from Isaiah 41, verse 1 through 20. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you warm Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chafe. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Twenty twenty seems like a year of chaos. You can look up hashtag twenty twenty in a nutshell and see this: Godzilla running past and yelling, "Get out of the way! They're coming!" Or you can find a graph about the relative importance of things in twenty twenty. Sweatpants have seen the greatest gains, and shaving, of course, has been on a steady decline since March. You know, before I record these videos, I shave my head and trim my beard. But what you don't see is that I may not shave at all in between. 
you can look up hashtag uh, my plans versus 2020 and see a balloon on one side and a pin to pop it on the other. No one saw this coming. And now that it has happened, you can find any number of predictions about how society will forever change because of the pandemic. But Yashka Mauk, an international studies professor, Johns Hopkins, offered an insightful critique in The Atlantic in May. He wrote, COVID-19 will undoubtedly cause some important shifts, but the sensationalist predictions that now dominate the world's opinion pages are likely to be highly inaccurate. He goes on to use an example of the 1918 influenza pandemic. He writes, The 1918 influenza ultimately killed more than 50 million. At the time, it must have seemed as though life could never go back to normal. Why would anyone ever risk again contracting disease just to share a drink with friends or listen to some music? But the devastation of World War I and the 1918 flu pandemic was quickly followed by a manic flight into sociability. The Roaring Twenties saw a flowering of parties and concerts. The 1918 virus killed more people than the deadliest war humanity had hitherto experienced, but did not reduce humanity's determination to socialize. 2020 has taught us two important lessons. First, we don't know what the future will hold. And second, we can't control it. A tiny virus, a small fraction of the size of a human hair, brought the entire world to a standstill. Isaiah 41 has a lot to say to us in this time. It says we might not know what the future holds, but God does. He knew what 2020 would bring. In fact, he's the one who brought it. We can't control the future, but God rules over history, and all of this is a part of his plan. What a tremendous comfort that brings us in this time. Even in the midst of a pandemic, a faltering economy and societal changes, we can have a deep inner peace because we're confident that our good and powerful God rules history. Isaiah 41 was a prophecy about the future when Judah would be in exile in Babylon. Isaiah prophesied that one day the nation of Babylon would conquer Judah and carry them away into exile. But Isaiah also prophesied that the story wouldn't end there. Even in exile, God would still have mercy on them. And that's what Isaiah 41 is about. Let's get into it. This chapter starts out in a courtroom setting. That's what this language is in verse 1. Let me read it for us again. It says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. This term means like the ends of the earth. It's what lies at the edge of the, continent, uh, of the continents. Listen to me, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Courtroom setting. God is summoning the whole world to hear his case. And the question is, who rules history? This passage is in the middle of two sections about idols. And the question is, Who rules history, the Lord or idols? And then in verse 2, we see the evidence God presents for his case. It says, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, that is, throughout all history? And then here's the answer. I, the Lord, 
the first and with the last. I am he. The Lord is the one who will raise up a king from the east who will trample his enemies underfoot. This is a prophecy about King Cyrus of Persia, whom Isaiah later names in chapter 45. If you've been around for the church, been around the church for a while, you probably are familiar with that verse from Romans 8 that says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a well-known verse for really good reason. It's a beautiful promise. It can give us tremendous comfort, especially when we're suffering. This verse didn't come out of nowhere. Long before the Apostle Paul wrote it, God used the Persian kingdom for Israel's good and for his glory. This passage in Isaiah is an illustration of Romans 8.28. Even a brutal conquest by the Persian army would be used for the good of those who love God. How much confidence does that give us in this time? God is using even the COVID-19 pandemic for his purposes. In fact, many of you have already told me how you've seen this in your own life. God has used this time to grow your faith or to strengthen your relationships with your family. But maybe you hear this and you think, how can God use evil for good? Doesn't that mean God is evil? The way theologians talk about this is by saying God is not the author or approver of sin. So God orchestrated the Persian conquest, but the unnecessary death and destruction was committed not by God directly, but by individuals in the Persian army. It's like when I sin, I'm choosing to do that and I'm responsible for that. But God uses even evil for his good purposes. Maybe you don't buy it. Maybe you're skeptical of Christianity and this is one of the reasons why. What's the alternative? Well, you can either say God is evil or that he doesn't rule history. Either he's too weak to rule history or he just chooses not to or he just doesn't even exist. This passage is a direct confrontation to that thinking. The surrounding nations in this time believed that there were gods who were not all-powerful. There were territorial gods, and the stronger gods won over the weaker gods. So the Persian god was stronger than the Babylonian god, and so Persia conquered Babylon. But this passage says, no, that's not how it is. One god rules all time and space, and he works it for his glory and for the good of those who love him. 2020 has made it abundantly clear that there are things outside of our control. Here's what Christianity offers to you. The peace and confidence that comes from trusting that God is all-powerful and good, working even evil for his purposes. If you don't accept that, it leads to something very different. Look at the next verse. This is the nation's response. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. If you don't believe there is an all-powerful God, then when life doesn't work out the way you want it to, or when you lose your optimism about human potential, you're going to be driven to fear and despair. And, that's, and then the only thing you can do is to try to strengthen yourself. That's what the nations do here. The word strength is used three times in these two verses. Verse 6, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. 
They try to encourage each other. And then they make idols for themselves. That's what's happening here in this next verse. Look at verse 7. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. You see the irony here that the idols that are supposed to save these people themselves need to be strengthened. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. These idols can't save them. The idols need to be crafted and strengthened by others. The idols can't help the people. The idols are dependent on the people. But even as Christians, we do this all the time. It's so easy to run to idols when we're afraid, where turning to God isn't always our first reaction. So like maybe when our, we fear our financial security, we hold on to all of our money instead of being generous and sacrificial. But our savings account can't bring us the security that we're looking for. It's too dependent on ourselves and on a changing economy. Maybe when we're stressed, we sometimes seek relief in binge-watching TV or going to sites that we shouldn't. But those things won't give us the comfort that we long for. The next time you're afraid or feel your anxiety driving you to an idol in your life, pause and remind yourself that our God rules history. Only God is big enough and good enough to provide the security and comfort our hearts are desperate for. Ask Him for help. Ask Him to strengthen you. And let that give you a quiet confidence that God is working all things for our good and His glory. The rest of this passage is three pictures of God's help for His people, three ways God rules history. So let's look at each one of these quickly. First, God conquers our enemies. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Even in exile, God still says, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Even when you feel distant from God, even when you sin against him, remember what he says. I have chosen you and I have not cast you off. And because of that promise, we need not be afraid or distressed. Look at verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. In contrast to those who try to strengthen themselves, God says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in the Hebrew, these phrases just kind of heap up on top of each other. We could maybe translate this as, I will strengthen you. Indeed, I will help you. Indeed, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then he says, <clears throat> Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. As all your enemies are going to come to nothing. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who uh, war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. 
It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. It's a beautiful picture. It's like a a father holding his young daughter's hand as they walk through danger. God upholds us with his mighty right hand and holds our right hand. Now, it's important to recognize that in the book of Isaiah, God's people were a political entity. They were the nation of Israel, so their enemies were flesh and blood people. But in the New Testament, that's no longer the case. Ephesians 6 tells us that our enemies are the spiritual forces of evil, sin, and death. Those are the enemies that God has conquered in Christ. Pew Research recently conducted a study to understand how Americans are viewing the uh, national conditions and also the upcoming presidential election. They found that 66% of the country is fearful about the state of the nation. That's a pretty big percentage, 66%. It's good to be concerned about the sinfulness of our nation and desire for us to become a better nation. But if we trust that God is in control, we need not be afraid about the state of our nation. And many of us are concerned about our health or the health of our friends or family in this time. And again, it's good to be concerned about that. And it's important to be wise about our health as well. My wife worked on a COVID-19 floor at a hospital here in the height of the pandemic. And we've been in Manhattan the whole time. So I know how important it is to be careful. But at some point, our caution can cross over into fear. The next time that happens, remember this picture. God is our loving Father, upholding us and holding our right hand. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff They comfort me. I think of my friend who lives in San Antonio, Texas. He was a pastoral intern at a church there, but has a background in nursing. nursing. And uh, the other day I saw this post from him and I was so inspired by it. Let me read it for you. He said, jumping back into nursing tomorrow. Got a contract position to help out with COVID-19 here in San Antonio. I'd appreciate prayer for protection and endurance as I seek to work hard to help and share the love of Christ with coworkers patients, and their families. That's someone who trusts that God is in control. Right as things were getting worse in Texas, he decided to step up and offer his help on a COVID-19 floor. I don't know about you, but that's really inspiring to me. What would your life look like if you had complete trust in God's rule? As Christians, We can trust that God has conquered our every enemy in Christ, even death itself. Those without God frantically construct gods for themselves. But those with faith in the true God can be at peace, even in the most tumultuous situations, even in the face of death. Because we know that our good and powerful God is with us. God conquers our enemies, and second, God removes our obstacles. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm. Worm here being a metaphor for weakness and insignificance. Fear not, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. 
and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. The picture here is, is of Israel clearing a path like a farmer does at harvest. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Now, it's a little bit hard to understand what this is all about, but chapter 40 helps us. Listen to how similar Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 is. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, it's a leveling of paths, a clearing of obstacles. In ancient times, people would make a path for visiting dignitaries or conquering kings. That's what this language is probably referring to. Uh, And we do similar things today. Last month, I finished reading Michelle Obama's autobiography, and she talks in it about everything that had to happen in order for the president to be able to travel. So the route had to be vetted and timed to the minute, uh, and he had to travel in this massive motorcade of over 20 vehicles. There needed to be police cars, uh, a hazmat mitigation truck, a counter-assault team, an ambulance, a signals truck equipped to detect incoming projectiles, and there was always a helicopter nearby ready to evacuate the president and snipers positioned along the route. The president's own car had tear gas cannons and even a sealed ventilation system in case of a biological or chemical attack. The first time Michelle saw this motorcade, she apparently turned to her security detail leader and asked, is there a clown car? Seriously, is this what he's going to travel with now? And he smiled and said, every day for his entire presidency, yes. Before the president could travel, the way had to be made clear. The idea in Isaiah is that God would use Israel to prepare the path for their coming king. They would remove every obstacle. What obstacles is it talking about? The New Testament says John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse 3. So that's pretty key as we try to understand what obstacles Isaiah 41 has in mind. And we read in Matthew 3 that John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord by preaching repentance. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Unrepented hearts is the obstacle that needs to be cleared. Repentance isn't as popular to talk about as faith, although it's, we've come to see its importance a bit more now that we've become more aware of our culpability in racism. But repentance is just as biblical and just as necessary as faith. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, we're told he, quote, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Faith and repentance. We prepare to commune with God by confessing and repenting of our sin. That's why the prayer of confession is such an important part of our service each week. You know, maybe this time of quarantine has exposed a sin pattern in your life. Ask God to change you. Ask him to grow you in holiness. Isaiah 41 says that God removes every obstacle to his coming by working repentance in our hearts. Trust in that promise and invite God to work in you. God conquers our enemies 
God removes our obstacles. And third, God provides for our every need. Look at verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. It's a picture of abundant and even supernatural provision. And it shows us that God cares about the poor and needy. You know, it's so easy for me to walk past those in need. And with the luxuries that have been afforded me living in Manhattan, if I wanted to, I could live my life in such a way that I rarely even considered the poor. And even when we do care for the poor and needy, it can be exhausting. The need can overwhelm us. Some of you have dedicated your careers to caring for the poor and needy. Those of you who work with nonprofits or who work in the medical field, Know that compassion fatigue is real. But our God does not have compassion fatigue. He's not overwhelmed by the need and he doesn't overlook the poor and needy. When they thirst, he floods the wilderness with water. He transforms the barren land into a lush garden with every kind of tree. That's who our God is. And this applies to all our needs, not just financial or physical, but also emotional or spiritual. Even those with more money than they could ever spend can still be poor and needy in their soul. We're all poor and needy in one way or another. You know, one of the things I've been praying for a lot the past few months is those in our community who are lonely. I think especially of those of you who are extroverts or who feel loved by a hug or an arm on a shoulder. I think of those of you who... Uh, live alone or who are new to the city. That's really hard. The next time you feel lonely or when you lose your job or when a friend or a family member dies, cry out to God and take comfort in this promise. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. That doesn't mean we won't suffer hardship. There are still the poor and needy in verse 17. And remember, God says this to people who would be conquered and exiled. But it means that when we're needy and we cry out to God, God hears us. And he will answer us, if not in this life, then in the next. Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He will abundantly supply your every need. And in verse 20, we see why God does this. In order that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. He works all things for our good and His glory. And this isn't just for Judah, but for the whole world. We read later in chapter 48, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, 
Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. What does it look like for you to proclaim to the ends of the earth that the Lord has redeemed you? What does that look like with your co-workers or with your family? Psalm 71 verse 15 says, My mouth would tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. God rules history, and he has brought it to its climax in Christ. Mankind, through our rebellion against God, have made ourselves his enemies. But while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He makes us his friends and conquers all our enemies, even sin and death itself. Our hard hearts resist God, but God has given us a new heart and worked in us repentance. God overcomes our every obstacle. And although for our sin we deserve God's wrath and curse, in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing. God abundantly supplies our every need. No matter what the rest of 2020 brings, we can face it with a quiet confidence and a deep inner peace because we know that our good and powerful God rules history and he's working it all out for our good and his glory. Let's pray. God, we confess that sometimes it's hard to trust that you rule history. Sometimes we can't understand why you do what you do. Sometimes it hurts. Help us to trust in you. Grow our faith and teach us to cry out to you when we're in need. Thank you for your promises to us in Isaiah. May we cling to them this week. Amen. Let's now give to God generously and sacrificially as a part of our worship, just as God has given so generously and sacrificially to us.